Father, this morning we stand under the banner of the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has won the victory over death, Lord, who has defeated sin, who has conquered the grave. And today, Father, we praise you that by faith in his name, the name that's above every other name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, to the praise of your glory. Father, we thank you that under the banner of that name today we gather and we sing and we worship. So would you be exalted in this place? Father, we humble ourselves now under the authority of your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to see what we cannot see, to understand what we on our own could not understand, and that you would equip us and empower us and embolden us to be your hands and feet as we make forth uh, your gospel known in this world. We ask all these things in the powerful, mighty, beautiful, matchless, glorious name of Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you're not there already, uh, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 26 this morning. Before I I jumped into things this morning, I wanted to share just an amazing story that's unfolded over the last uh, couple of days. Last Sunday morning, uh, as we were walking through Philippians, we saw the power of the unstoppable gospel, how the gospel cannot be hindered by difficult people, and it cannot be hindered by difficult problems, and gave the example of how the Lord could even use something crazy like Easter at a drive-in movie theater to draw people to himself and people come to saving faith in Christ. And uh, right on cue, yesterday morning, I get an email uh, from a guy who had come to Easter at the drive-in. He had attended with his fiance, had only been to church a handful of times in his life, but that day, uh, the Lord just struck a chord in his heart. And for the last several months, has, uh, he's been uh, asking some questions and, and trying to just uh, learn a little bit more, and the Lord surrounded him with some people who can help him understand the faith a little bit more. And so out of the blue, he emails me yesterday morning, says, hey, can we talk? And uh, after about a 45-minute conversation yesterday morning, Uh, He's professed faith in Christ. He's going to be baptized here in a few weeks. So we praise God, absolutely. And we, we stand at church in the confidence of the gospel. We trust the gospel to do its work. It may take, for some weeks, it may take months, it may take years, but ultimately we trust the gospel uh, to do its work. There is a, a Twitter account, satirical Twitter account. It started back in 2016. It now has more than 30,000 followers, and uh, the beautiful name of this Twitter account is The Daily Death Reminder. And uh, you could probably imagine what this pretty much amounts to, but every single day, without, fair, uh, without fail, for the last four years, uh, they have tweeted out one simple four-word sentence, and the sentence is very profound. It's this, you will die someday. And that just lands right there in the middle of the timeline. Every single day is that reminder, the daily death reminder, you will die someday. So it's simultaneously meant to be a little bit morbid. Some people have a weird sense of humor. And, uh, but also that reminder that every single one of us will, in fact, not live forever. Psalm 90 says that all our days pass away under God's wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. In a similar way, James says in James 4.14, he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Similar way, Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So it's not just the musing of a satirical Twitter account. It is a true, certain, unescapable reality and a biblical truth. We will die someday. We will die someday, and uh, the Grim Reaper, who is the cartoon avatar of this particular account, uh, even if you look at this in a secular sense, is undefeated. 
Death will come knocking on the door of every single person that's in this room, whether you believe in God, whether you don't. None of us in this room are going to escape the day of our death. It's appointed to man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And we are never going to be free to fully live until we come to grips with the reality that we will die. We're never going to be free to fully experience life as God intends for us until we come to terms with the fact that one day we will die and we will stand before him. And if you look across the centuries of church history, the followers of Christ who have made the greatest kingdom impact have been the ones who have understood this truth. The ones who have come to terms with the reality that one day they will pass into eternity. They will stand before the Lord. And this empowered and enabled them to make the most of their lives in the here and now. Last week, I briefly shared the example of Jim Elliott. He lost his life advancing the gospel to unreached people. And he knew that where he was going was ultimately going to be significant danger that he would face. And there was a a significant high possibility that he would lose his life. We shared last week those very powerful words that he'd recorded in his journal not long before. That he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, that is his life, to gain what he cannot lose. That's Christ. Elsewhere in church history, we see through the example of Martin Luther. He sought to rescue the message of the gospel from the corrupted hands of the Catholic Church. He faced threats to his life. He, he was opposed at almost every single angle. He knew that the result, the consequences of his actions could potentially be his death. And yet when he was called to testify, these were his words. My conscience is a prisoner of God's word. I cannot and will not recant for to disobey one's conscience is neither, safe, is neither just nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. This past week, uh, we observed the uh, anniversary. It's been uh, coming up on 500 years now, October 6th, the death of William Tyndale, his martyrdom. William Tyndale was strangled and he was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And his final words as he passed into eternity were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And because of his efforts, you and I hold these in our hands today. We maybe consider this before we toss them in the floorboard of our cars. 1553, John Calvin wrote a letter to five young missionaries who were arrested and sentenced to be martyred in France. And his words to them were, For let enemies do their utmost, they shall never be able to bury out of sight that light which God has made to shine in you. And these are just a handful of of stories and testimonies of those who have bravely faced death for the sake of advancing the message of the gospel. Those who had come to terms with the reality that one day they would stand before Christ and it was only what they accomplished in this life for his name and his glory that would endure into the next. And so they gave of themselves fully to this mission so that you and I could hear the gospel so that we could be people who heard the message of who Jesus was and hear the message of salvation, of faith in his name. Which is why people like Charles Spurgeon could say very triumphantly that death is no punishment for the believer. It is the gate to endless joy. Here in Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul makes one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture when he says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul understood there was nothing he could lose in this life that he would not gain in eternity with Christ. And so he, like so many others, gave his life for the advance of the gospel. So the central truth that we're going to see this morning from Philippians 1 is that Christ is our all. Jesus Christ is our everything, and we can boldly give everything in life because we will joyfully gain everything in death. To live is Christ. 
If God has us here, that's his plan, that's his purpose, that's his will. We will surrender to this and we will make the most of this life and making his name known. But even for the believer, to die is gain. If we live, it's going to be with Christ and for Christ. And if we die, it's going to be with Christ and for Christ. Let's read uh, from Philippians 1 again, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So we see here at first this morning that because Christ is our all, first we can rejoice consistently. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, a few weeks back, we noted that one of the dominant themes of the very short book of Philippians is joy. But that theme is only built upon the greater foundation of this book, which is the name of Jesus Christ. In these four short chapters, some variation of the name of Jesus appears almost 40 times. That name that we just sang about a moment ago, that beautiful name, we, we see it almost 40 times in four short chapters. Either we see Jesus or Christ or Lord or Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. In some capacity, we see his name appear almost 40 times in this short chapter. So it's a pretty simple correlation for us to make. If you're going to know true, lasting, invincible joy, you have to know Jesus Christ. He's going to be the foundation of this joy. And when he's our foundation, we can find ourselves rejoicing regardless of the circumstances. So group participation here for just a moment. It's our weekly reminder, where is Paul writing this letter from? He's writing from prison. And yet his joy is not shaken regardless of the circumstances. Now, uh, to keep this passage in its context, we need uh, to really tie back to where we were last week because these words, yes, and I will rejoice, show up in a lot of our Bibles as a new section, but they're actually a continuation of what happened in verse 18. What we saw last week is that there were rivals of Paul who, while he was in prison, saw that as an opportunity to build up their own personal platform in sharing the gospel. So their, their motives were not pure. They weren't serving the Lord, weren't serving the church. It was all about building up their name and their legacy and people knowing who they were and using the name of Jesus to get there. And yet in spite of all that, in spite of their efforts to make Paul jealous and to, to sort of twist the knife on him while he's in prison, Paul signs off there in verse 18 saying, listen, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So Paul is rejoicing not because things are going well for him. He's rejoicing because he knows that the name of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And then he doubles down on that here in verse 18 when he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. The preaching of the gospel and the worship and the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ, that is the only sure foundation of lasting invincible joy because that's all that's going to endure into eternity. The one thing from this life that will pass into eternity, it's not going to be my name, it's not going to be your name, it's not going to be our glory, but the glory of God will endure forever. The name of Jesus Christ will be cherished forever, will be exalted forever, will be revered forever. Our praise in this place this morning, that's the one thing that's going to carry into the eternity to come. So whether in pretense or in truth, our primary concern is that Christ is proclaimed and it's in that reality that we find joy. To know Christ, to make Christ known, to know that Christ is being made known, that is the foundation of joy. You and I are not going to consistently experience joy until we learn to continually express praise. Regardless of the circumstances, that is what defines our faith. Can we praise in the midst of the pain? Can we praise in the midst of the trial? And that's what we find in Jesus Christ is a joy that can't be shaken regardless of the circumstances. He goes on to say uh, in uh, verse 20, 
He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So because Christ is our all, we can rejoice consistently, and second, we can live courageously. This word that, uh, deliverance that Paul uses can also be translated salvation. And it's a word that typically refers not just to uh, temporary salvation, deliverance from trouble, but ultimately to our eternal salvation on the judgment day before Christ. And so uh, while there's a possibility that maybe Paul was somewhat referencing uh, his potential release from prison, his ultimate concern is not vindication and salvation here on earth. His ultimate concern is in the eternity to come. Paul has come to terms with the fact that he's going to die. He understands, I'm here declaring the message of the gospel. That may cost me my life. And so he knows that life is not guaranteed. Nothing within the next day for him is certain. And so he centers himself on this one reality and says, whether by life or by death, my aim is going to be for Christ to be exalted, regardless of what the Romans decide to do with him. And, and here's how Paul says our courage is, is undergirded. Here's how it's built up and how we'll be delivered. He says in the first half of verse 19 that we'll be delivered through the prayers of God's people. It's through the prayers of God's people that we can find ultimate deliverance. He says, first half of verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers this will turn out for my deliverance. The Philippians have been praying for Paul. They've been lifting up. They've been interceding for him while he's been in prison. We saw a few weeks back that uh, Paul has been praying for them. We see the content of his prayer earlier here in chapter 1. And church, there's a very simple practical application that we need to make from this text, and it's this. When you're praying for someone, tell them. Tell them that you're praying for them. And, and let me tell you why, because uh, it's very difficult for people to be encouraged by the prayers that they don't know you're praying for them. But this is what happens when we start to share this testimony of, hey, I've been praying for you, and this is what I'm doing for you. This is an example from my own life just this past week. is uh, Wednesday morning, I woke up, and Wednesday's uh, my typical message prep day. I'm an early riser, so I wake up, my alarm goes off, and I'm uh, just kind of in a frenzy. I had a lot to do Wednesday and was just feeling kind of anxious and stressed. I was having a really difficult time focusing in on my message, and so I um, had started my message prep around 4.30 in the morning, but then uh, this went on for a couple hours. I was just really struggling to, to focus in and to study, and then out of the blue, completely random, around 6.30, 6.45, I just had this overwhelming sense of peace. Like tailored, you know, I don't know, maybe it was the second cup of coffee by then, I'm, I'm not sure, but I just felt this overwhelming sense of like, hey, breathe things are going to be okay. You're, you're going to get this done. You're going to get through this day. You're going to get the message finished. Like, don't worry about this. Well, uh, I typically have my phone off all day long while I'm doing message preps. I was off that morning, and I didn't turn it on until later that afternoon. And that afternoon, I read a text that had come in earlier that morning uh, from Kamani Brown Carpenter. Many of you know Kamani within our church family. And uh, around 6.45 in the morning, he had sent me this text that basically said, hey, I just woke up with this urge to pray for you. It just so happens that's roughly around the time I started to feel this sense of peace of like, hey, it's going to be okay. Uh, same thing, like that morning, I woke up with a friend on my heart, and um, I said a prayer for them. And then out of the blue, he contacts me later. He's like, hey, man, I just wanted to let you know. I had not heard from him in months. This, this one particular guy, he just contacts me, says, hey, I just wanted to let you know. My family and I have been wrestling through this decision. I'm going to be pastoring a church in Nashville. We're just kind of stressed out about it. There's a lot of details that go into it. Um, and just wanted to let you know before the news is going to go public to our staff today. And I'm like, hey, man, I kid you not. Like, I woke up for you this morning. I said a, a short prayer for you. He's like, you have no idea what that meant for me. Just to be able to hear this, church, when you're praying for people, tell them. Tell them that you're praying for them, and then what starts to happen is we find this encouragement as we see, hey, prayer actually works. 
It actually has an impact, and it's difficult for us to see those impacts if we're not communicating those prayers uh, with one another. So we're delivered through prayer, and then Paul also shows here that we'll be delivered through the power of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Second half of verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Many of us in our community groups right now, we're working through the Growing Up study, and our first scripture memory uh, passage for last week was the Great Commission. And what's the promise of the Great Commission? I am with you for how long? Always. To the end of the age. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 20, because he knows that the Lord is with them. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This language that Paul uses here for eager expectation, it literally translates a straining of the neck or a stretching of the neck something that someone is, is reaching for and longing for. Earlier uh, this past summer, I took my boys up to the zoo in Columbia. And of course, as you've been to the Columbia Zoo with little kids, everybody's got to stop and feed the giraffes, right? So um, we're walking up the ramp. And um, as we're walking up the ramp, it had already cleared out and we had to go still get our lettuce you know, so we could walk over and, and hand, hand the, those leaves off to the giraffes. Um, as the boys start walking up the platform, the giraffes, two of them go ahead and just make their way right up to the edge. That they come right up to the railing there, and uh, Lincoln's our youngest, he's three, so he's a little guy, he's short, and he's doing his very, very best. I mean, he's got his lettuce, he's stretching up on his tippy toes like this, he can barely get his hand up to the rail. So what the giraffe does is it stretches to reach him. It comes down to where he is, it stretches his neck as far as it can go over the side of the railing, and then comes that, you know, like eight, ten inch nasty tongue that reaches down and, and snaps it out of his hand. And, and but what's amazing about the giraffes is uh, they came up to the edge of the railing before our boys were even standing there. It was an eager expectation. They knew what was coming. They had confidence and they had experience in what was coming. So in the same way, church, for us as followers of Christ, hope is not an uncertain aspiration. Hope is an eager expectation. You and I do not hope for salvation in the same way that we wake up in the morning and hope that it rains. What that looks like for us is we just wake up and get our umbrella. History has taught us, we've seen the forecast, we see the clouds, we, we see everything lining up, and we have experience in this, and so we're just expecting it to happen. And this is what Paul is talking about with his salvation. It's his eager expectation. He's stretching out, he's anticipating, and he has full confidence that the Lord is going to bring about his full deliverance. He communicated this confidence back in verse 6. He gave this promise to the church in Philippi in verse 6, where he says, the one who began the work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. If the Lord started the work in you, he's going to bring it to an end. And Paul knew that one day his vindication would come. He knew his vindication was coming. He knew that in the moment he was going to boldly serve Christ regardless of the cost. Now, uh, like me, many of you grew up within uh, the Baptist church, and you have undoubtedly heard, if you did, of the Lottie Moon uh, International Missions Offering. If that's you this morning, we just put up your hand this morning. You've heard that phrase before. Yes, yeah, about the same with the first service. Most of us in the room in some capacity, you've heard the name of Lottie Moon, but maybe you don't know the story of Lottie Moon. Uh, Lottie was born at December 12, 1840, to an extremely wealthy Southern family. Their fortune, most of it was decimated during the Civil War. And Lottie stood, uh, even as an adult, all of four feet, three inches tall. And she's just itty-bitty tiny. And uh, like many Southerners, she had a very natural taste for cultured life and conversation. But she denied herself. She suppressed those desires. And she's best known uh, for serving for nearly 40 years 
as a missionary in China. Uh, oftentimes in her travels and as she was raising support for her mission's efforts, she would contend uh, with men in the churches who criticized her, who said that she was not cut out uh, for this particular work, that she was completely out of her league. And yet in spite of all the criticism and opposition she faced, the stories of her life are nothing short of legendary. There's uh, one particular example, 1911, there was revolution that broke out in China and uh, the U.S. had asked all missionaries to evacuate to safety. But when Lottie heard that hospital personnel had been abandoned, she navigated her way through the fighting, she took charge of the hospital, and the work did not fail. It continued and it sustained all throughout the revelation because, revolution because of her presence there. On this, she would later write, as I wander from village to village, I feel it is no idle fancy that the master walks beside me, and I hear his voice saying gently, I am with you always, even unto the end. As toward the end of her life, these words of hers would be published in the Foreign Missions Journal. She said, I feel that I would gladly give my life to working among such a people and regard it as a joy and privilege. Yet, to those who may think of coming, I would say, count well the cost. You must give up all that you hold dear and live a life that is outside of your work, narrow and contracted to the last degree. If you really love the work, it will atone for all you give up. And when your work is ended and you go home, capital H, to see the master smile and hear his voice of welcome will more than repay your toils amid the heathen. Lottie died at age 72. She had $254 in her bank account, and at the time of her death, she weighed no more than 50 pounds. At the end of her life, though, 2,358 people through her ministry had professed faith in Jesus Christ through baptism, and since its inception almost a century ago, more than $3 billion have been given to the annual missions offering that bears her name. She boldly gave everything in life because she knew that she would joyfully gain everything in death. Church, there is absolutely nothing you and I can lose in this life that will not be repaid and returned a millionfold in the eternity to come. This is the hope of the Christian. This is the hope of the follower of Christ is that we can lose everything this world has to offer. We can live with that type of sacrificial boldness because we know there's absolutely nothing we will lose in eternity because we have Jesus we have everything that we need in him. We can sacrifice it all because we know that we will gain it all with Christ. Verse 21, Paul goes on to say, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So because Christ is our all, we can rejoice consistently, live courageously, and third, we can die confidently. We can die confidently. In verse 21, Paul makes one of the most emphatic declarative statements in all of the New Testament. Now, where you and I read verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain, we need to understand the translators have actually given us those verbs so that the language would be a little bit more understandable. There's not a formal uh, Greek to English equivalent for what Paul says here, so the translators gave us verbs there, the word is, so that the sentence would just make sense. The way it literally reads by Paul, just to show how emphatic he's making the statement, is like this, to live, Christ, to die, gain. He uses no uncertain language whatsoever. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. If that's what God desires for my life, if that's what he wills, if that's what he wants for me, I will surrender and submit to that will and I will live my life fully to the glory of God. But if I die, that's gain. That's gain because even if I lose my life, I gain everything with Christ. This is what we mean by invincible joy. 
This is the exact meaning of this because Paul lived, church, it was an absolutely bulletproof life. There was nothing you could threaten him with. You couldn't threaten him with prison. We saw this last week. They throw him in jail. What does he do? He converts 9,000 members of the Imperial Guard. They all hear the gospel. So he sees them. He's like, I'm not just a captive here. They're captive listeners. He uses that as a platform to share the gospel, but they can't threaten to take his life. It's like, Paul quit preaching. He's like, we're going to kill you. He's like, finally, I'll get to be with Christ. I mean, he, he goes as far as to say, he's like, that's actually my desire to depart and be with Christ. That would be far better. He has so much confidence. He has absolutely no fear of losing his life because he knows he's going to gain everything with Christ. His heart is fixed on eternity. His heart is longing for the day that he's going to be with Jesus. Paul's body might have been here on earth, but his heart was in heaven with Jesus. Torn between two worlds. And so there's nothing they could threaten him with because he had a joy that couldn't be taken regardless of what was taken from him. You know, church, we, we may mean well when we say it, but we really have no idea just how wrong we are when a loved one passes away and we say something like, our loss is heaven's gain. And you know why this is? Heaven has nothing to gain from us. Heaven has everything it needs with Christ. We don't improve it by going there. It has everything it needs in Christ. Even in our absence, it has all that it needs in Christ. Christ gains nothing. We're the ones who gain everything. We're the ones who receive Jesus. And you listen to how Paul expresses this. He says it's, it's not his desire to be in heaven. It's his desire to be with Christ. Like he's going on vacation. It's, it's not just heaven. It's, it's, it's Christ. It's not that we're focused on getting to a place. We are focused on getting to a person. And the person is Jesus. He's the one for which heaven is what it is. John Piper has written in his book, uh, God is the Gospel. He said, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. What is your aim in getting to heaven? What's your primary concern? What's your primary desire? He says the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And if we don't want God above all things, then we have not been converted by the gospel. That's Paul's desire. If he's going to live, it's not going to be for himself. It's going to be for Christ. If he's dying, it's not so he can go to heaven as a place. It's so he can have Christ as a person. To live, that's Christ. To die, that's Christ. Regardless of what happens for Paul, life or death, it's going to be for Christ. And he's torn between these two worlds. He's fully surrendered to the will of God. Look, if you want me in the here and now, then I'll be here in the here and now. But if you want me to come, then fantastic, great, because I cannot wait to be with Jesus. Church, here's a really simple way to test the authenticity of your faith. When you think about death, does it bring you joy or cause you fear? Because for the follower of Christ, there's nothing to fear in death. That for the follower of Christ, that the truth that we cling to is that death has been overcome. It's that Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. We don't have to stand in fear of these things anymore. There is nothing to fear. The penalty for our sin has been paid. Death has been canceled. It's been arrested as we sing a moment ago. That's, that's when our lives actually begin. We don't actually begin to truly live our lives until we can stand in the victory that Jesus Christ has overcome and conquered death. It's from that foundation that we built up and that we're able to pursue everything that he wants for us in this life. So he sees, Paul does, not uh, death through the lenses of losing life. Paul sees death through the lenses of gaining Christ. 
That's his primary concern. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why people like Jim Elliott say things like he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why women like Lottie Moon say things like to see the master's smile, to hear his voice of welcome will more than repay your toils. The reason the gospel gives us the hope of invincible joy is not because it says you're going to get to have everything in this life that you want. The reason we have invincible joy is because the gospel says, look, you could lose everything in this life. And yet you will have lost nothing because you've gained Christ, who is your all and who is your everything. So if we live, then rejoice as we live for Christ. And if we're to die, then we rejoice because we'll be with Christ. He rounds out this passage, verses 23 through 26. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So because Christ is our all, we can rejoice consistently, we can live courageously, die confidently, and forth, we can serve continually. Again, here's Paul's dilemma. He's being very honest and transparent here in this passage. Here's his dilemma. His desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's what he wants. He's a a man torn between two worlds. His desire is to depart and be with Christ. But he lays down his desires. He lays down his personal desire. He lays down his personal comfort and his preference for the sake of others. So that others will know Christ. He says, I must remain where I am. This is verse 25. It was for their progress and joy in the faith. Now, both of these are necessary. We saw this last week, that being a follower of Jesus, it's, it's more than just having made a decision for Jesus. To be a follower of Christ means that your delight is in Jesus. Not just that you have acknowledged some facts and you've checked off some boxes and agreed to some statements. At the foundation and the core of your being, what, what brings you the greatest joy? Until that is Christ, we don't have true, authentic, saving faith. Christ has got to be the foundation of who we are and what we are and what we believe and what it is that we're after because everything else is ultimately going to fall short. So our desire as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, it's not just a desire to see people converted to Christ. We want to see people become content in Christ. Again, very simple question for reflection this morning. Church, are, are you happy in Jesus? Do you have joy in Jesus? Like when you consider what he's done for you when, you, when you look at the cross, when you sing of his victory, when you look at the life he, he lived for you, and look at the ways that he's, he's blessed us, the way he's guarded us, the way he's guided us and protected us, do you have joy in Christ? Listen, if you are miserable as a professing Christian, respectfully, you're doing it wrong. We're intended to experience joy. And sometimes this is what I think we, we deceive ourselves into thinking is that the Lord is opposed to our joy. That being a Christian, that being holy is about being miserable. And that, that is the antithesis of what it means to be a follower of Christ. God is intending and he desires that we would delight in him. That we would have joy in him and satisfaction in him. There's maybe no better example of what it looks like to delight and have joy and satisfaction in Christ than through the life of George Mueller. Another extraordinary story similar to that of Lottie Moon. He was a native German who was alive for almost the entire 19th century. He spent most of his life in Bristol, England, and he pastored the same church for over 66 years. That brother had some long suffering, I'll tell you that much. 
And uh, age 28, he find, uh, founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute. This was broken into five branches. One was uh, Bible schools for children and adults, another focused on Bible distribution, another focused on missionary support, another focused uh, on uh, evangelistic literature. But most famously, uh, there was a branch that focused on ministry to orphans. And uh, throughout his life, George Mueller is credited for having served over 10,000 orphans. 10,000 orphans. He read his Bible cover to cover more than 200 times, and this is one of the most amazing uh, facts about his life. He never one time asked anybody for a single dollar for his orphan ministry. He stepped out in faith, and he trusted that if he started doing these things, that the support ultimately would follow, and, and that God's people would see the need and would step in and chip in and make sure everything ha- everyone had everything they needed. And he did this very much on purpose. He didn't take a salary uh, for uh, the last few decades of his life because what he wanted to do was give the world an example of what it looks like to be fully content and satisfied in Christ. He wanted the world to see an example of faith, of what happened if we just stepped out in faith and went and lived boldly and courageously in the way that the Lord intends for us to live and trust in faith that the Lord is going to continue to provide all of his needs. And so you listen to to a resume like that. Again, most of us, we read that. Again, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul, you know, superhero to live as Christ to die as gain. You're like, I just don't feel that way. I don't feel that bold. I don't feel that brave. How could I ever measure up to that sort of resume? But I think we can still ask ourselves the question, what fuels a life like that? Like what what drives somebody to live a life like this? This is what Mueller said later in his life. So simple. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And how did he do this? Very simple. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, how I might get my soul into a happy state, and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do, ready for this, was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. Such simple, ordinary means. He devoted himself to prayer. He devoted himself to the Word. He had faith that the Lord would provide. And again, this is one of those things I think sometimes as 21st century Christians, because we have, we have such a, almost an, an embarrassment of riches in terms of our access to Scripture, is, is, is so many of us, I think, we deceive ourselves into thinking it's st- that's still not enough. Like, here's the reality this morning. If I get up today, and like I get up right now, it's like, hey, make sure you, make sure you pay attention. This is what you should be doing this week. We should all read our Bibles and pray. Probably no one in this room is going, wow, that's profound. I could write that down. I've never heard this before. That's not going to be the reality, but, but this is what most of us do, is, is I think something happens within our hearts that we're like, it can't be that simple. It can't be that simple as immersing myself in God's word. It can't be as simple as praying. It can't be as simple as stepping out in faith. And yet you see story after story after story after story all throughout church history. Here's the reality, church. You've never met a mature follower of Jesus who is truly, genuinely happy and joyful in Jesus who is not seriously devoted to the word and prayer. You've never met that person. It's, it's these simple, ordinary means. If we will surrender ourselves and our desires and our preferences and we'll submit ourselves to the word of God, we'll hide it in our hearts, we'll, we'll fill our minds with it, we'll go before him in prayer. If we seek first and foremost above all else, above anything that we want to do, to simply be happy in the Lord. This is gonna be the foundation that allows us to give of ourselves sacrificially and boldly for the joy and progress of others. You listen to the life of a man like George Mueller, and this sounds a lot like a man who learned to say, yes, and I will rejoice. 
I will rejoice and I will make my soul happy in the Lord. Church, we have a a very unique season that we're in right now. Uh, The the challenges of this year have have really forced us to to just just sort of pare things down and focus on what matters the most. Um, And and just so you know how we as as staff and and our pastors and elders, as we were standing before you a little bit ago, just how we're thinking behind the scenes, we shared this with our community group leaders at a dinner a few weeks ago. There's a sense in which this fall, what we're doing is we are in many ways relaunching the church we're having to refocus our mission. We're going to have to, having to pay attention to what matters most. You've noticed over the last six months how like a lot of restaurants have really scaled down what they offer on their menu. We're going to focus on what we do best. That's really our approach this fall as a church. It's like we need to focus on these basics of preaching the message of the gospel, trusting it to do its work, of intentionally making disciples of others. That's why we're walking through this growing up study right now. And, and what we're doing right now is we're trying to prepare for what's next. And here's why this mission of discipleship is so important. You have been given the message of the gospel, not just for your salvation, but for someone else's salvation. Do you understand this? This is one of the first lines we read in the growing up book, how the gospel does not just come to us, it comes through us. You heard the message of the gospel because someone else shared it with you. And that's why the Lord has given us that mission. It's that we would not just have salvation for ourselves, but for the joy and the progress of others. For others to profess faith in Jesus Christ, for others to find contentment and delight in Jesus Christ. And so what we have to do is sacrifice a lot of personal preference, even if that personal preference is to depart and be with Jesus. That's about as good of a desire as you can have in this life, and yet what does Paul do in this text? He says, but the Lord wants me here right now. And for as long as I'm here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to boldly and sacrificially give because Paul knew there was nothing that he could not be replaced a millionfold in the eternity to come. Church, this is the confidence that we live in this morning, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that you as a follower of Jesus, you can lose everything in this life and yet lose nothing because you have him. We have Jesus. And so I I just want to give us that reminder this morning you will die someday. Have you come to terms with this reality? And, and we can do a couple of things with this. We can live in this paralysis of fear. And we, we just sort of lock ourselves away and we're going to be you know, hermits for the rest of our life. And maybe if we're lucky and we take really good care of ourselves, we make it all the way to 100. Or we just pretend like it's not going to happen. We, we, we waste our days away on completely frivolous things that are going to have absolutely no impact in the eternity to come or... We can have full confidence that Jesus Christ, the name above all names, he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, he has conquered hell, he has conquered the grave, he has given that victory to us so we can joyfully sacrifice of anything in this life, even if it is our life, because we will joyfully gain everything in him in the eternity to come. So fathers, we, we close this morning, we rest in that truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, we we celebrate the truth that uh, even if we were to lose our lives, that there's absolutely nothing that we truly lose because we have life in you. So Lord, let that declaration empower us and embolden us to do bold sacrificial things in advancing your kingdom for the joy and progress of others, that they would see you as beautiful and glorious and worthy of their lives. So, Father, we devote ourselves to this mission and to this message and ask that it would be faithfully declared from our mouths as we go today. So, listen, if you're, you're here this morning, just keep your heads bowed with me for a moment. And 
today you're a professing follower of Jesus, but maybe for some reason you just you feel like you've just grown cold, you've grown numb, stale in your in your walk with the Lord. Could it be that you've you've just not paused to consider eternity? Just maybe need to be reminded this morning that yes, one day we we will die, we'll stand before the Lord. We'll give account for how we lived as his followers in this life. And we just need to be renewed with a new strength, a new energy to focus on what matters most. To lay down our personal preferences, to sacrifice everything if the Lord calls us for the sake of those who don't know him. Listen, if you're here this morning and for some reason you fear death, listen, the only reason to fear death is if you don't know Christ. (laughs) Instead, the invitation for you this morning is, is to know him to call on his name, to turn from your sin, to confess to him that you have sinned, that you are a sinner, to repent of your sin, to run to the perfection of Jesus, to have faith in his perfect life and death and resurrection, be filled with the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit to boldly and joyfully give of anything in this life with the confidence of knowing you'll joyfully gain everything in death that's you this morning, call on his name and be saved. Use those next steps cards we're going to use that to communicate with us. Let us follow up with you and walk with you and encourage you so you can know that you're not alone in this. Don't delay. Don't leave doubt. Don't leave uncertainty. Don't leave questions. Leave confidently today in the declaration that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That even if you were to lose your life, you would only find eternal life in him. So Father, be glorified now as we sing, as we lift our voices to Christ who is our hope in life and death. Receive glory and honor and praise from the mouths of your people. And will we leave today in the strength of your Holy Spirit as we fulfill your great commission. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen.